All right, here we go, here we go, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Bold chance, close your eyes, let's pray. Stop where you are, here we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. All right, good to see you. A little slow on the comeback there. What's going on there? Too much fun? All right, let's give some money away to somebody. I think uh, Arthur just was here this morning. His son got married last night, so that was a big party. Chicago stopped in its tracks. Uh, it was nice, but he came back this morning. He leaves for Spain this afternoon. Jose Luis, one of the guys that we've uh, sponsored, St. John particularly has sponsored over the years, is actually going to be ordained in Sevilla on next, next uh, Sunday, I think. And they will also dedicate a new church there. Um, Fred Gady's our guy. He's our representative. You know, he, he'll bear that in St. John's name, and he'll be our guy to go. So we're very grateful for Fred to take the time to go over and also represent us. But if you toss some money in the basket, we'll replenish the Spain account. Okay, that's one thing. Bring some stuff for Christmas sharing. Sign up. Do nice things. That would be good. Um, Carol won't answer the straight question of what she wants, so I guess you should just follow the directions that are already given in life together. So food, very lightly used clothes. There's always need... Or new. Or, or new. Yeah, actually, new is even easier. My advice to you, sit down on Thanksgiving morning and shop for about an hour. Uh, seriously, and have it sent directly to the church. It's the easiest thing to do. So some people have done it over the... You just... Shop on Thanksgiving morning when everything's on sale. You can still stay in your bunny slippers and your jammies. It's not a big thing. And, uh, you know, send stuff forward. Boots. Boots were a big hit last year. Somebody brought a bunch of kids' boots. That was a very nice thing, right? What's that? Did you buy it? You brought a bunch of kids' boots. Anna, she's a nice woman, Anna. She's very nice. Marty's a lucky man. All right. um, Anything else going on that I've forgotten? Give some money away. Spain is happening. Thanks for coming to church. What else? Anything else going on? All right, one, two, three, here we go. Um, it's just such an, America is such an interesting place right now. You should think of it as a land of opportunity, but maybe perhaps in a sense you haven't thought before. One of the great things that's happened, I think that's happened, and I'm trying to follow the news fairly closely, is there hasn't been a lot of Christian triumphalism um, in this, in the, at the demise of so many... Uh, influential and famous people. That's a good thing because we've got our own troubles and that's not the way that uh, the world works. You should instead double down on your efforts to live as a Christian. I mean, the things that are going on in, in, in life right now, the, um, the raw power grabs in politics, only thinking about yourself and not about constituents, the sexual assault and harassment things. I mean, when, when Paul talks about things like this should not even be named among you, you're right, this should not even be named among you. And what you have, you know, if you're a boss or, uh, you know, if you're in a position of power, if you're a representative of the people, you really have the opportunity to not be that guy, right? You really have that opportunity, and you should, you should just you should crank that up as high as you can to not be, um, you, know, you know, what we see so much of in the world today. So... I'll just kind of leave it there, but although I can't leave it there given what we're going to do, but I just, you know, try to, try to do your best, and um, self-reflection is always the first good step, right? All right, so last week, question about anything just going forward? Last week, we left the Blessed Virgin Mother 
and her last words in scripture, do whatever she tells you. It's a, it was a fabulous thing. I give you, you know, my derivative shortcuts from that, okay? So this is pretty, you know, you sort of make your way through life. It looks like this. So this is just number one. I know it's frightening for you when I actually start with the outline, but every once in a while, you know? So love is obedience. <laughs> Thank you very much. Love is obedience, right? Love is obedience, right? Is there any difference, um, you know? Uh, like, is there any difference between love and obedience? There's not any difference, right? So love is obedience. Grace is a person, right? Grace isn't a thing. Grace is a person. Jesus is grace incarnate, this disposition toward others to love them in spite of themselves. So love is obedience. Grace is a person. Joy is a place, right? When Jesus says, I've come that your joy may be abundant, your joy may be full, what he means is that you're absorbed into the church and sometime translated before the face of God. So joy is a place, ultimately, and life is touch, and so the constant sacramental touch, right? So life is pretty easy. You know, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mother, do whatever, do whatever he tells you. Now, given that, um, one of the interesting things about Jesus immediately is that Jesus welcomes people who ask questions. One of the hardest things about the church is the church often avoids questions or has avoided in the past and not, has not been welcoming to um, kind of more at the pastor level than the intellectual level, hasn't always been willing to um, listen and respond. Qu- quite the opposite many times. It's very much, and you may have heard this at some time in your life. <clears throat> Let me, <clears throat> here we go, ready? Because I'm your father. because I'm your mother, because I said so, right? Yes, nervous laughter from different quarters, right? But (laughs) pretend like I'm talking about somebody else right now, okay? So uh, what's interesting, though, at at kind of high intellectual levels, certainly in academics since, since the Enlightenment, since the French Revolution, you know, for the last 300 years, there's, there's, are very few things, um, that have been scrutinized as closely, very few religions or things in humanity, very few things that have been scrutinized the way Christianity has and still sustained itself. And so um, Jesus was the lead in that. You don't have to really be afraid of questions. In fact, it's very important for Christians in the image of Jesus to engage the questions with patience and to give the best possible answer. The answers will not always be satisfying to people because of the different hermeneutics they have, the different presuppositions, right? So people have different presuppositions about how life works, and um, some things, you know, some things run headlong into other things. Nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, sort of the basic notion of Christianity hangs together in a logical form. And some of the greatest thinkers in the world have ever had a, had a go on it. You have a quote beginning this morning from Gregory the Great, who was said to be, you know, the smartest pope. Um, uh, he was always considered the smartest pope ever until Benedict came. And then there was this thing that Benedict might be his rival, right? Thomas Aquinas, you have this, at a, at the, you know, this is what I do. I don't know what you do when you go to... Um, I know what you do when you go to wedding receptions, but part of what I did last night was had a discussion with a, uh, uh, a theology professor, full professor, very distinguished guy from Marquette about whether Luther and Aquinas had the same idea of love and faith. Is that what you usually do too? Yeah. yeah. 
You know, at one point he said, can we step away from the crowd so we can really go out? I'm just like, <laughs> the drinks and dance, that way. the people. But uh, anyway, so, you know. Who won the argument? Uh, we actually ended up agreeing, to be honest with you. We both think that Luther was that guy. So, um, yeah, I mean, Thomas is a genius. So, um, kind of at point number two, you know, given the way his mommy raised him, it's no wonder Jesus likes questers. Jesus loves pilgrimage. The way is made by walking. Let's go to Spain. Arthur's on his way this morning, right? We should go with him. We should walk a bit on the Camino. It was there already, and I just want to pause and say this. Um, it was there already, and it's always there at the end of the church here and at pain points when things, when the stakes kind of get ratcheted up and Jesus is coming again and pay attention and examine yourself and... Um, as Lewis says, the only reason you go to hell is because you want to. You know, the door for, to hell is locked from the inside. But this very interesting text this morning about the wise and the foolish. And you remember just in classic Christian thought that wisdom is one of the chief priorities. Um, and I give you something from Elizabeth Scalia. She's a lay, Catholic laywoman who's a bit of a genius. She blogs quite a lot, and she's very often right. And so I did read her this, this week. Um, on the things that she... I was curious how she would respond to the sexual assault and harassment claims and what she would do with it. And I gave you a little bit of her blog. I'm telling you that because that's the context from what's behind this. But she actually says the, the answer to this is wisdom. So this little bit at the bottom of the page, right? That wisdom is... Um, sorry, this doesn't quite hurt you. Wisdom um, is a matter of priorities, Right? And then prudence is this practical value of ordering your priorities. This is very much the way that the West has learned to think. But wisdom is knowing what's important, and prudence is knowing what's most important, right? So um, we, are, we are on the way there. So I'm turning the page. <clears throat> uh, one of the, another guy that I was, I just kind of sort of give you this kind of this first quote down on the second page. Um, it's something between foolish and dangerous to say, God is love, and if I come up short to cover my tab, I'm too busy and too tired right now. Right? I had another conversation. I had, it was interesting. It was a fascinating. It was probably the most intellectual wedding reception I've, I've ever <laughs> been to. You know, It's all doctors, and, and uh, Congressman Roskin was there, and I got to talk to him a couple of times about some different things. And you know, It was just a very, it was professors and academics and doctors and you know, politicians, it was an interesting, in a fun way. I mean, if you can do that over tacos and beers is what I'm trying to say. Not, not sort of like kind of snooty, but it was sort of like gloves were off and everybody was willing to talk about everything. It was fabulous. But, um, you know, we, this is just not, um, look, the gospel doesn't work by force. It works by love. Love is this genuine invitation, and the only way you're outside it is if you say, I'd prefer not to. But to be honest with you, um, you know, one of the great things about being a human being is to have freedom. And, you know, I've said this to you several times, eternity is when you get your way forever. I mean, hell is when you get your way forever. Heaven is when Jesus gets his way forever, right? So nothing works by force, and you really have to pay attention to your life now, and the glory of Nicodemus is that he can ask a question, right? The glory is that he can, uh, he can ask a question. So we've been chasing since the beginning of John 1, this notion, these synonyms that light 
and love and incarnation and grace, right? Because all these things come together in the person of Christ, right? In his flesh, light and love, truth and way, grace and the face of God all come together in the flesh of Christ born of Mary. And so uh, one of the big things I can say to you, which I give to every vicar pretty much as soon as they come, uh, is the title of this and also under point three. And Christians would be, and most people, but especially Christians, almost everybody I know, but Christians especially, me included. This is easy, right? Sell periods by question marks, right? One of the interesting things, especially in this age, when so much data is flying around, is how sure people are on the surface level. And two questions in, they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Now, there's a couple of uses for that. One, again, you don't want to be that person. You have to think deeply about these things. The world is a challenging place. Um, Christianity is becoming a minority, and in some cases, a persecuted minority. It's taken a little time for people to think that way um, when it comes to Africa or when it comes to the Middle East, you know, it comes to Syria. It's just hard, you know, for people to think that way because Christians have been in charge for a couple thousand years. But the script is flipping. And so it's important to be able to engage in a kind way, in a Christian way. But it's important, most important, most important to be less assertive and more questioning. Sell periods by question marks. In all you do, sell periods by question marks which means you have to think and read and listen and be patient and explore and try to sort things out in a very, very coherent way. You know, you yourselves, um, you have to think about things like, can you be against abortion and for the death penalty, right? Or you, can you be against the death penalty and for abortion? You have to think these things through, right? This is, this is two, two ends of one string. Right? The, the increasing use of, John Kleinig wrote me this week, among other things, he said, you know, he's in despair because of the, uh, well, in despair is too strong. He is disturbed by the fact how, how uh, euthanasia is kind of sweeping across state by state in Australia. Right? And we've already seen this in Europe, how it went from people who were terminally ill to <clears throat> people who were addicted to people who were depressed and now to children. And parents can begin to petition physicians to have their children um, die by the assistance of a physician. Right? This is a very, it's a very dangerous thing that takes a lot of, but the only way you figure this out is question marks. So Jesus sort of sets the tone for this today. So there's this old joke which I give to you. Why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Right? Is it wrong for a rabbi to answer a question with a question? So the, the point of this, of course, and it's funny when Jewish people tell it, of course, but because, uh, you know, because, because it's their culture, because they think in this way, because to study you know, Torah is to ask questions, right? And so um, I'm at sort of at point four, which brings us into Nicodemus. You have to know just a little bit about the Pharisees. You remember there were these major parties, Pharisees, Sadducees, the priestly case, also, the political kings, you know, you have to sort of have that. But at least for the Pharisees, they accepted both the oral and written law. So that means they accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, but were also given to the prophets and the Psalms and also the oral interpretations of that. 
they were very sure that God was active in history. So if, you, if you're an historian or if you read history, you know, one of the, even still one of the arguments is about whether history is made by great individuals or um, by classes of people who move. And then, at least among Christians, whether God intervenes in history and moves things around. I just read the last thing I read last night, for whatever reason, really late, was a study of precocious children. And I was thinking about this in terms of, so basically they've studied these kids who have super high IQs from birth and I think like for 25 years. And what they found is if they're allowed to flourish, which means given tools, skip grades, great mentors, the thesis was, I mean, well, at least the data they present is that kind of supersized intellects have supersized influence on the world. Now, you might not, you might think, you might first think, well, of course, that's obvious, but actually that's not been in style for some time, that, that thinking that individual people can change the world in spectacular ways, right? So that's been, that's sort of been repressed in terms of thinking about, you know, how the mass, so it'll be interesting what the new data looks like when people come to that. In any case, um, you want to, you, you, you know a little bit about the Pharisees. They thought they were in and they thought other people were out. They had strict rules for how they lived. You know, 341 rules for every day, two-thirds of those for how you, how you are at the table, which should be the background for when you think about going to the Eucharist, right? The table, fellowship, to include people in a people and then in a family and to have them near and to engage them was to love them and to include them. So, um, and they did have this strong sense that good people get rewarded and bad people, you know, the Messiah will come and slay them. There are writings called the Songs of Psalms, Psalms like the Psalms that you know, but the Psalms of Solomon, that have just imprecatory prayers against the evil. Come and destroy them, annihilate them from the face of the earth, right? So part of the messianic notion was that good people will survive into the eschaton and horrible people will be annihilated, and that's the nicest thing you'll say about them, right? instead of just being tortured forever or tortured and annihilated. And Nicodemus is this man who, now here's, see, see, here's sort of the connection, who has a questing heart. It's not enough for Nicodemus to have what he has. There are a couple of Nicodemuses in history in first century, like, so let's talk about, you know, from zero to 100, if you will, right? There's a couple of... Nicodemus is recorded in history. Um, one of them falls out too soon to be in this story, but the other two are given, usually traced back to the Ben-Gurion family, even in our day, David Ben-Gurion, right? From Israel, Prime Minister of Israel, as I recall, right? So you're, you're known by your family, you're known by your rabbi. And there was a Nicodemus who was quite politically powerful and had money. Is this the same guy? I don't know. But there are certainly guys that are around to make this story quite plausible, Right? And so um, he comes to Jesus and he poses this question in great humility, right? So I'm at point five now. There is, in any quest, humility. In any pilgrimage, there's humility. You know, the, may, the way is made by walking, right? You, you move from here to there and you learn along the way because your whole life is disrupted. You sleep in... Bad places, exercise, rains, you know, it gets cold, you get blistered. The way is made by walking. Or this morning when you come, right? 
there's a pilgrimage between the font and the altar. That's the Emmaus Road, right? So Jesus comes to the disciples. What are you seeking? Are you, the, are you an alien? You're the only person in town that hasn't heard this story. What story? Jesus asked questions. What story are you talking about? And they sort of lay it all out. And they said, we thought he was the one to come save us. And then what happens? So now you're moving from font up the aisle to the altar. What happens? Jesus opened the scriptures. You're at the lectern now. And he explained them to him. Now you're having the sermon. And then he broke the bread in front of them. You're at the Eucharist. And what? Do you remember what the text says? Their eyes were opened. Their questions were answered. So this very patient paradigm of people who come in humility and are greeted with patience. Right? So you have that opportunity. Right? Here it is before you. You have the opportunity to be different than other people in the image of Christ. So here's the little bit um, from uh, Scalia. Okay. Humility is an unpopular. This is under point number five. Humility is an unpopular, one might say barely considered, hence untaught virtue. But it is the key to developing a fully virtuous life in a just society. The practice of humility does not allow one to serve a perception of one's own power. Pause. Just think of American politics right now. The practice of humility does not allow one to serve a perception of one. Humility is not self-serving. Nor to reduce other people to things, sexual assault, or objects. Rather, it forces one to consider the gifted humanity of the other. Right? Now, for you, when you look at each other, you should say, the primary way you relate to other people is you're baptized. I'm baptized, you're baptized, same, same. Right? Or, I bear the body of Christ in myself from the Eucharist this morning, as you do as well. So when I look at you, the first thing I see is the body of Christ in you. Right? Or even... We see in every human being the dignity and handiwork of God. So, rather, it forces us to consider the gifted humanity of the other. It understands the privilege must have been knowing and serving the other, of knowing and serving the other. Humility is the gateway virtue that trains us in all the other heavenly virtues. Pause. We've talked about this before. The sequence is always memory, then humility. If you aim at humility, you can't get it. The way that you get humility is to think, to remember what you've been given, who loves you, the people who cared for you, where you came from, what was put into you, right? So memory, it goes like this, just like we've talked about this in the past. It goes love, then trust. Always, always love, then trust. It goes memory, then humility. This is how the virtues work, right? Memory, then humility, but this interesting thing where start with humility and the rest of the virtues come. Watch this. This is very clever. Humility is the gateway virtue that trains us in all the other heavenly virtues. Kindness because what? It remembers receiving kindness. Patience because what? It remembers having experienced impatience. Diligence and charity because it has seen the rewards of both. Pay attention. Look around. The world is a better place if you're generous than if you're miserly. 
The world is a better place if you're fair to people rather than always trying to screw them. Temperance, because a humble soul is one that takes less rather than more. And so, you know, I've said this to you before, the great, it's not that there's not enough food in the world, it's that there's, the food is improperly or inefficiently distributed, right, even in our own community. Chastity, because humility recognizes the co-creative, God-connected gift of sexuality, right? In sex, what God lets you do is cooperate in creating a new life. So I talked a little bit last week about how, you know, your, your life isn't like a line that has a point on each end. If you can think back to about fourth grade math, your life is like a ray. It has a point, and then the arrow on the other, and it goes forever. And when you have children, what happens is that you participate You participate in the concreation of another human being. What God did in Genesis, he shares with you as he shares so many other good things with you, Right? Being generous, bringing the kingdom, being forgiving, being gracious, being loving, concreating these all things to work. Grave sin will be with us until ages of ages. So little commentary there. So there's no point in being angry all the time. And frankly, um, even when we're surprised, we quickly kind of go woeful. We kind of said, we never knew that. We say more like we knew that was out there. and We should have worked harder to make it go away. But grace can abound, and it can bring... Here it is, light into dark places, John 1. It can heal the festering wounds of our psyches and our souls, but we have to want it, right? We have to ask for it. Not because you generate it, but because it's been given to you and you can say to it, thanks very much, or you can say, that, hey, that's not for me. It's an open secret. This is a little play on the title of her thing was basically all the sexual harassment stuff was an open secret in Hollywood. Right, so this is her kind of response to this as a woman. Pursuing humility, asking for the grace of the virtue of humility, and then practicing it is a way to begin. And that's what you have in Nicodemus today. You have just a beginning. Right? This guy who has everything. He's likely rich. He's likely from a very, well, we know he's rich because later he does remarkable things with his money. But he's rich. He's powerful. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, right? So he's a member of the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. He's rich. He's powerful. He's from a good family. He's in. He's not out, right? So um, what does Jesus do with him? Still, his heart is restless. And so um, for me, it's very interesting to watch. Um, And in some places I admire, uh, I kind of watch how uh, Silicon Valley, to me, often in the stuff I read, sort of rewrites pastoral care without God. It's very interesting to watch. I talked to you about this YouTube a few weeks ago about the, um, the Muslim man who'd lost his son and how, how poignant that was. And then, you know, we talked once about Sheryl Sandberg's um, commencement speech, right? But what's interesting, what always strikes me in this is, for Christians, there's nothing new here. Like we knew, we knew this already. We perhaps did not articulate it as well, although it has been articulated well in the history of the church. But, we, but, the, but I, I'm always struck by there's nothing new here, and there's actually more to follow. And Nicodemus must have this same sort of feeling, that there, there's, there's more to follow. All this I have, right? I'm rich. 
I'm famous. I rule in the city of God, which for Jews was the center of the universe. And yet, he's got this restless heart. It's such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing that's happened to him. So just last presupposition, and then we'll sort of look at the text, which is, you know, Jesus is not as optimistic about human beings as we are. Um, we're so optimistic about ourselves and what human beings are and the good that they can do. I, part of the, I think part of the sobering thing of the last month and the last year in America is it's very hard to talk about human beings as being good. And it's very hard to suggest that we will solve our own problems when we are our own problems, right? So much more fruitful, and actually the way of Jesus is to say, I'm ruined. Now what's the way out? My heart is restless. Life at times seems purposeless. I don't exactly know which way I'm going, right? Because my heart is dark, right? What's the way out of that? The way out is to question and walk, question and walk, question and walk. The way is made by walking, right? It's a Camino. By questioning, ask a question, especially about yourselves. The very first margin comment in the bulletin today is from St. Paul saying, have you examined yourselves? Right? This is what we do every week in confession. Have you taken a good look at yourself lately? Not other people. Forget about talking about other people. Yourself. Have you, have you had a good look at your heart lately? Jesus is not particularly optimistic about us, right? Um, we're ruined and we need to be restored. You know, and, and just kind of to push it, it's not enough to be socially or civically good. Right? The divine works on a whole different scale. I dropped a comma there which it should say pure, comma, holy, comma, right? Perfect and divine. And so often then, if that sounds depressing, the great joy of it is it's not a good work until it's forgiven. Or every good work needs to be forgiven. Everything you need needs to be co- everything you do, everything you are needs to be covered in forgiveness. Which in itself then you see creates humility. Because if you say of all of everything I do, everything I do is tainted. All that I do comes up short. Nothing I see is exactly clear. Nothing I feel is exactly true. It all needs to be forgiven. That's why you go to the font and you go to the Eucharist, right? And, uh, you know, just kind of warning for everybody. You know, life is short. And uh, getting shorter, I, I'm, I'm feeling the seven-story mountain thing where, you know, uh, or the Thomas Mann thing of the older you get, the more the faster the time goes. Time, in a sense, is objective, of course. But when you're young, you think time is moving so slowly. Right? When you're old, he you know, reflects on this, how time moves so fast, it moves away from us. And then the kind, kind of the final reminder that you can't see your life in real time. So what's the answer? The answer is that you do whatever he tells you. If you can't see your life in real time, if you don't know the way, if you're restless, if your heart is unsettled, if you do good but you know that good's not pure, if you're pretty smart but you don't have all the answers, if you have lots of resources and even using those resources well isn't satisfying for you, there's a reason for all of that. It's deep down in our hearts we know that everything we touch is tainted, right? So what's the way out? Okay, so finally... 
John 3. Ready? Here we go. There is a man uh, of the Pharisees, and now you know what that means, named Nicodemus, and we might know what that means. He was a ruler of the Jew. This man came to Jesus by night. This is John 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, which is a way to put himself under Jesus' care, right? Rabbi, we know you are a man sent from God. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, and no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Just cut a pause there. So the whole thing about coming at night is interesting. The previous chapter told us we're in Passover. Passover is a, cra- a crowded time in Jerusalem. The city was about 35,000 people at this time. It goes to about 150,000 people because all the pilgrims have come. So now ding, 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 right? You have this one pilgrim, this one seeker. Among all the seekers, you have this one holy man amidst this holy mass of people, right? So in a sense, Nicodemus himself becomes a, becomes a sign for everybody who's there. He's, you know, he's every man in a sense. And he comes to Jesus at night. Why does he come at night? Well, um, it's when the day settles in. In the Middle East, if you've been there, some of you have been there, if you remember sort of how quickly night comes, boom, it's like there's very little dusk in the Middle East, boom, it's over. And it's the time when people um, sort of settled into study and to ask questions and to have conversation and to be with family, to sort of sort life out. There's the outside possibility, too, that Nicodemus is afraid to be seen with Jesus that he already has a reputation, and if people find out that he's visiting this rogue rabbi from Galilee, that things might not go well for him. Or maybe he just doesn't want the, you know, this is a backdoor meeting, right? He didn't use the front entrance of the hotel. It could be that as well. So we know God is with you, and we know that you're doing some things. But, you know, basically, what are you doing? Jesus answered him, truly, truly. Legal, this is a legal term, amen, amen, is the... the Greek, amen, amen. It's a legal term, which means what I'm about to say to you is really serious, solid, true, eternal. I swear by it. Pay attention. This is the sort of thing you'd say in a courtroom, which is kind of interesting, right? So, um, truly, truly, I say to you, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, has a new birth, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is everything for a Pharisee, right? Right? Because when the, when the Messiah comes, then he annihilates all the enemies and we win. They lose, we win, and everything is perfect. So I've just turned the page and I'm above number 12. Uh, but I think I've sort of done everything above there. So then Nicodemus, basically 12, I'll sort of consolidate the question for you. How can an old man have a fresh start? Right? So you can do this chronologically if you want. How can old people get a fresh start? Occasionally, you know, we get called to a bedside where somebody has just made a hash of their life, you know, and they're fortunate enough to say kind of their last thing. You know, get the priest. Constantine, you know, the Christian emperor, you remember he wasn't baptized until his deathbed, right, even though he was considered to be a Christian. Um, And it also works with um, metaphorically in terms of uh, people who are quite sinful, I've done all these things. How can, how can this be fixed? Right? How, how, can things be, how, how can things be fresh? And then Jesus. Okay. How can a man be born again? Can he enter again into his mother's womb? So Jesus says this very cryptic thing about a new birth. Jesus said, 
Now, here he gives you sort of the, the amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the one thing you need to pay attention, amen, amen, pay attention to this. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, this is um, often you get, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this because it's just grammatically impossible. A lot of people will split these two things. So there's a baptism in water and a baptism of spirit. Often that's talked about, especially kind of in Wheaton or Pentecostal circles. It's impossible grammatically here. In the Greek, there's one preposition that governs two genitive nouns. I know it's a little technical, but the point is these are two parts of the same thing. Doesn't mean there's a baptism of water. It just, it's impossible for it to mean this. People are making up a story when they say this. It's a, you could have that story if you want it. You just can't base it on this text, right? It's baptism of water and the spirit, you know, water of hydrogen and oxygen. I mean, you just, if, you do, if you don't have one, you don't have it, right? So, all right, so um, how can you do this? Well, you need to get baptized. This is not unknown, right? If you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, you would, among other things, be baptized to become a Jew, this is why John the Baptizer's baptism wasn't so strange. Right? And, you know, regularly, I, have this, I came across this picture when I was preparing for catechumen yesterday morning of this Iranian woman. I should get it out and show it to you. She's fully clothed, you know, sitting on the ground with a bowl of water in front of her, and she has a, a, a ladle, uh, and she's in the midst of completely pouring water over herself. Now, in context, it could be for heat. It could be uh, ceremonial or um, from before a meal. But it has this, it's the most beautiful picture of this woman who, like, what you, you, know, you know, what you see is what I see is her being, you know, cleansed in the midst of a hot, dry country, uh, uncontrollable in so many ways. So Nicodemus comes in that same kind of country, and he says, you know, how can this get better? And Jesus says, um, you get this thing where you're baptized with water and the Spirit, okay? And I've given you sort of a little bit of the Greek there in 13. Now, when somebody who knows the Scriptures, you know, um, when somebody who knows the Scriptures hear water and the Spirit, like you, I hope at least what you hear is the Genesis story. Right? Genesis 1, 1, 2, 3. And the Spirit hovered over the waters. And the Spirit, the, water, the waters were tohu wabohu. They were formless and void. And then God speaks the way he speaks in baptism. Let there be light. Or you could hear it as let there be order, let there be creative purpose, let there be purpose to light, let there be grace, love, let there be a way forward, let there be light. And there was light, and it was the end of the first day. It was morning and evening the first day. So a Pharisee who knows the stories, when Jesus says you need to be baptized by water and the Spirit, a Pharisee would hear... That's an old story. Now that's a new story. And what he would hear is that something as big as Genesis 1 was happening to him in real time. That's what he would have heard, right? Which is why it makes it so, so crazy. And I've given you the text um, at 14, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just flip the page and go just above. 
Jesus wants Nicodemus to hear this, and he wants you to hear this too. You should hear, when you hear water in the Spirit, you should hear this water. And we say this every Easter vigil, right? This water, this font is your womb, your ark, your Red Sea, your promised land, your purification, your vindication, your salvation, your way, your love, your light, your life. If it happened to Israel, it happened to you. If it happened to Jesus, it happened to you. If it happened to Israel, it happened to you. That's what Nicodemus is hearing. If it happened to Jesus, it happened to you. That's what you should hear at the font. right? And that happens by um, the splash of water, so we have this physical sense of divine tattooing, right? Divine claim, divine ownership. That's what happens to you. So you um, are now owned by God, right? You belong to God. The very last chapter of the scriptures, Revelation 22, when good people and evil people are being sorted out, he says, and he knew them by the mark on their forehead, right? It's the name that's tattooed on at your baptism. That's the sheep and the goat story. It's being branded and unbranded. It's being you know, wild and on your own and being obedient and, big finish, free. Because the only way you ever find freedom is through obedience. If you want to be free, obey and go to the Eucharist. If you want to be free, obey and be baptized. If you want to be free, love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to be free, love God. If you want to be free, be humble. If you want to be free, be forgiving. If you want to be free, cultivate the virtues. If you want to be free, be bound. Right? A disciple is somebody who sits at a rabbi's feet, sits at the dirt, and does what he's told. The word that Paul uses for Christians is doulos, slave. Right? If you want to be free, be bound to what's greater than you are. To do that takes the humility to say, There are things greater than you are. There are persons greater than you. Right? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. That's the text. All right, so um, the backstory I sort of give you here. But look how Jesus kind of moves through this. It's so nice. You know, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say, unless you're born anew, so get a new birth. Then Nicodemus, question mark. How does that work? And then Jesus Truly, truly, I say, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, right? That which is born of flesh is flesh. Your flesh is sinful, and Spirit is holy. So you're born holy, you're born sinful. Don't marvel, I say to you, you have to be born again. How does that work, Nicodemus says. And Jesus says, well, it's kind of like the wind, right? You can feel the wind, right? This is pre-Conrad Johnson, Channel 7, the meteorologist of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I'm sure you all watched him growing up just like I did. He was an interesting man. He had a weather station on the top of his house. Someday we'll go to Cedar Rapids together. We'll all take a look at this. It's a beautiful thing, right? Right? So 16, how do you know? Well, it's like the wind. It blows where it wills. It's autonomous, materious, powerful, incomprehensible, effective. And then Jesus says, you know, verse 9, or Nicodemus says to Jesus, how do you know? And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, how do you not know? Do you see this? Question, 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 question. How do you know? How do you not know? Right? If our interchanges with people looked more like this, um, Christians would have a little better reputation and would be a bit more uh, successful at loving other people. And then 19 on this thing and verse 13 in the, in the book, the, the great finishes. How do you know? How do you not know? How do you know? Jesus, big finish, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be divine is, yeah, I saw it happen in real time. 
right? So now he weighs in. So how, does, how, how did, how's he gotten there? Nicodemus comes, he has a restless heart. Jesus tells him four or five things he doesn't understand. Question, 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 question. Jesus, answer, answer, question, answer, question. And then finally Jesus says, after he's rung in Genesis 1, where the spirit hovered over the water, and John 1, the agent of creation, Jesus created, at the behest of the Heavenly Father. So the Father speaks, the Son acts, the Spirit hovers, and then he says this remarkable thing, which is, uh, I saw it happen. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven but the one who descended from heaven. It's basically, you can't go up, but I can come down to you. Right? I've seen it. How, how, I'll tell you some heavenly things that I've seen. Right? And then um, we'll go, but you know how the story ends where Jesus says, he's just like Moses in the wilderness. He had all these people who were, thought they knew. I mean, this is an American story. They had it so good they didn't know what to do. In fact, what they complained about most was that God, you know, um, grubhubbed food to them every night, right? Manna, right? And the Hebrew is, what is it? It's miraculous. The, the word manna means, what is it? What is it? It's a miracle. So every day... Morning and evening, God did a miracle for them, you know, without the use of the Internet. And food appeared. And what's their big problem in life? Even when he cares for them, makes them his own people, loves them, keeps them close, and feeds them, they say, we, won't, we don't want this worthless food, and we don't want your protection. And what happens? God is, as often does, is, you know, God doesn't have to be vindictive. It's just simply the notion of, okay, you can have it your way. When God finally gives, it, gives you your way, you're a dead man. So what happens? Fiery snakes say, hey, the curtain's up. Here we go. Lunch is on. Right? And these snakes come and bite them. What are you supposed to learn from this story? Which is, on your own, it's an illusion that you can carry on on your own. It's an illusion. Right? It's just that God loves you enough that he's patient with you, that he protects you, and please don't take advantage of that. In humility, instead, walk the way that you're meant to go. So, um, Nicodemus, uh, there you have him. But if you can just, um, if, you can, if you can have a lesson from him. We, we, we hear him two more times, because it's not unlike Mary. We do hear him speak once. So, um, Nicodemus, um, I'm sorry, Mary's last words, um, do whatever he tells you, and then you see her at the cross. Nicodemus uh, will speak for Jesus in the Sanhedrin one time where he basically says, isn't a man innocent till proven guilty? And you can presume from that that he paid an enormous cost. But the interesting thing is, is the last time you see him is when he comes again by night, comes to Jesus and takes the body down, buries it in a new tomb. With it says 75 pounds of spices, which is the amount that you'd use to bury a king. Right? It's a startlingly great story about generosity and love and sticking with things, right? Right through death and beyond. Okay, got to go. Love you. See you next week. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love you. See you soon. Don't forget Christmas sharing.